Now, if you've been here at Covenant for a little while, you'll also know that today not only marks the beginning of Advent and the beginning of this wondrous season of the year, but it also marks a, a new beginning for us as a congregation because for 52 weeks, we have been on a particular journey. For the last year, for 52 weeks, we have been in a series called Living the Liturgical Year. And part of what that's meant is that we haven't had any sermon series in here. We haven't had the preachers choosing what scripture passages they wanted to preach on, but we had the lectionary text of the church. Every Sunday, there's two Old Testament and two New Testament options given by the greater church, and we would choose from those lectionary texts. So we've had a year to get ready for this Advent journey. <clears throat> a year to really creatively think about what we want to do for an Advent theme or for Advent scriptures or how we want to approach this. And after a year of putting it all together, what we've come up with is this. We're going to do the lectionary text again for several more weeks. Uh, we think that this is going to be a meaningful way of journeying through uh, Advent. But uh, what I want you to know is it's going to work a little differently than the last year and that we're not going to be choosing from among these Old Testament and New Testament options, but that each week in the lectionary text, one of the Old Testament options for every Sunday comes from the prophet Isaiah. And so we are going to be using the lectionary text from Isaiah starting today and each and every Sunday going forward on this Advent journey to have some depth in letting the words of this book of prophecy guide our steps, okay? So before we read our text today, what I want us to do is just take a step back, not just for today, but for the weeks ahead, to understand a little bit about how we are to approach books of prophecy in the Bible and then specifically the book of Isaiah, okay? And a lot of what I'm going to be sharing with you comes from Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann. But I think this is going to give us a good kind of foundation and context for this journey with Isaiah that we're going to be taking. So Brueggemann has this um, uh, great quote. He would be very upset if he knew I just referred to him as Brueggemann in a service. And the good news is this is broadcast on live stream to the whole world. But um, Dr. Walter Brueggemann uh, would, has this great quote, and he says this. He says, starting with the Exodus and throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God calls individuals to mediate and guide the moral and religious lives of the people. Now, what he's saying there is, is, is that the, in the Old Testament, they had the law, the Torah, but they need sometimes uh, mediators to help them understand how does the law apply to this situation? Or what does it mean in this context? And so God always gives different mediators to come in to guide the people on that journey. So let's take it in the timeline of the Old Testament. First, you see that after the people leave slavery in Egypt, in the wilderness, as they're waiting to enter the promised land, God has Moses and Aaron that serve in this role. And so if you remember in the, in the book of Exodus, when the people were journeying for 40 years in the wilderness, they would have disputes arrive. They would have questions arise as to what it means to be God's people. And so Moses would have the people set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and Moses would go inside with the disputes or the questions that the people have, and that God would descend upon the tent of meeting, and God and Moses would discern the way forward. And Moses was emerged saying, here's what we're going to do. So Moses and then Aaron serve in this role. Next. We see after the people enter the promised land, it changes a bit because Moses is no longer there. But they, as they enter the promised land, the 12 tribes of Israel scatter. They don't um, have a monarch, a king or a queen. Part of, you remember in the Old Testament, is God wants to be the monarch. But there are judges over each tribe. 
And those judges did exactly what Moses and Aaron did. They would take disputes, they would take questions, and then they would go and pray and talk and commune with God and return saying, this is what it means to be God's people. So again, God gives them these mediators. Third, we see after a while that the people want a monarch. They want a king or a queen. They don't want to be different from other nations. So God gives them a system where there's sort of this uh, bifurcated dual system of leadership. There's the king or the queen. So you think about like King David or King Solomon. Uh, but there's also the temple that's built and the priesthood that comes into existence. And God would speak through the priesthood and through the temple system to say to the kings or queens and to say to the people, here's what it means to be God's people. Here's how we follow the Torah. So it keeps changing, evolving, but God has these mediators. But what we see next is that this leads to, uh, as within any system that exists for a while, uh, decline. There are times of corruption. Uh, the, the, the kings and queens become more corrupt, but the priests also become more corrupt. What we see is, is that they become more interested in holding on to power than really listening to God's word. Uh, and so what happens is there's great division. The kingdom of Israel divides into two and all this fighting and conflict because it separates into the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Uh, and uh, then there comes the exile where the Babylonians come in. And again, they're trying to figure out how God communicates, but God can no longer do it through the system. This is where the prophets come in. This is where the books of the prophets come. In this time of decline, of division, of difficulty, God keeps speaking, but the system and the establishment have become too corrupt. And so God speaks through these prophets. And what we see lastly, and Brueggemann makes this point, and I want us to understand this today and in the weeks ahead, is that the prophets really both admonish and declare God's faithfulness. So there's an admonishing that comes along. Uh, there, there, there's, it's one of my friends who's a pastor says, there's like a gut punch with every prophet, right? Where there's like, uh, this is not just broken, but here's how you've participated in the brokenness. Here's how the systems become corrupt. If you want a little light reading just to check out at the end of the day, don't go read Jeremiah. Don't go read Amos. Don't go read Hosea. Don't go read Micah. And you're like, no, 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 Micah, Micah 6, 8, I love that. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. I love Micah. There's like 12 other chapters. And it's really hard that what Micah's saying. So you can't just take a verse and be like, no, Micah's so great. No, it's, it's hard stuff. There's a gut punch. There's an admonishing that comes with it. But it's not despairing. There's a declaration of God's faithfulness. This is what the prophets do. And it's important for us to understand that dual role when we talk about a prophet like Isaiah. Let me give you an example of what this looks like to me in real life. Uh, as, as I, um, or in contemporary life, when I uh, went this summer, I got to go, as many of you know, on a three-month sabbatical. Uh, my wife was given a sabbatical from this church as well. I was given a sabbatical. Our family uh, had a really unique summer. It was an incredible gift to us. Um, and one of the things I knew is that I needed it. I've shared this with you all before. I knew I was tired. I knew that I kind of needed a break uh, from just the day in and day out of ministry. But one of the things that was surprising was when I got a few weeks into it, realizing that not working was not some magic cure to spiritual revival. Um, and, and that was a really important moment. And I've shared this in my first sermon back, but, but there was a moment where a few weeks in, I was journaling and writing and, and, and really reflecting on why I wasn't feeling necessarily better. And in this very powerful and very clear moment, God spoke and basically said to me, you need to own your part in why you feel the way you do. 
It's not just going through COVID and the difficulties of that, as hard as that was. Yes, that's real. It's not just the going through the 2020 election and people on the left and people on the right who are equally assured that they know the way forward of what it means to be the church in this time. All of those divisions are real. All of those things have, have been difficult. But part of your spiritual dryness that you need to feel is you've gotten away from certain spiritual habits on a daily basis. You need to own your part in this. It's not just out there that's the problem. And that was a very important, not easy, but very hopeful turning point for me in my sabbatical of needing to kind of take that admonishment to move forward. That was, in my world today, that was a prophetic word. Prophets aren't some fortune tellers of what's going to happen. They're bringing a prophetic word which can both admonish and judge, but also to give us hope for what God's going to do. So you'll see that in the text today, but you're going to see that in all of Isaiah as we go forward, that dual role. All right, so that's some of the background of the prophets. And very quickly, I just want to set up Isaiah before we read the scripture uh, to, and, and go forward with a few points. First, uh, the book of Isaiah was likely, almost every scholar agrees, was written over about 200 years. It starts with the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, who we're going to read about today. But as you go forward in the book, there are historical things mentioned that someone in Isaiah's time couldn't have known about. And so likely this was written uh, over about 200 years. The first part that we'll see here uh, in number two was written uh, likely chapters 1 through 39. And that was before the exile. That was before the Babylonians come in. And that's more of a focus on the first part of the prophets, on judgment and on loss. There's a lot of hard stuff in the early chapters of Isaiah. But next what we see is that there's also a turn. And that's really in, in Brueggemann's words, uh, uh, chapters 40 through 66, after the exile, when the people have returned from Babylon. And there's a different tone to that. It's more hopeful and it's more faithful. But last, what I want you to see here, just as Brueggemann said before, is that we have to engage in Isaiah both parts of this. There's a judgment and a hope. And anytime we read the prophets, we need to see and look for the presence of both. There's the gut punch and then there's the inspiration of where we go. And that's going to be present in the text we're going to read today. Okay? So again, this is just setting up the next several weeks, not just today, of how to think about this book and the prophets generally. All right. With all of that in mind, let's read then our scripture passage from today, from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I invite you to listen to God's word to us today. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem... In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we gather and worship today, that we would experience your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So friends, what I hope you heard in this are both of these parts that come with prophetic texts. That there is an admonition, there's, there's an admonishment that's there. There's a sense of we have wandered away from walking in the paths of the Lord. That Isaiah is calling us here saying we need to return to the Lord's ways. We need to return to walking in his light. But there's also this sense of hope, what this candle burns for. Because it's not saying that God's given up on us as we've wandered away, but it's saying that God will respond. That God will respond to areas of pain, of brokenness, of loss, of things that are not the way that the Lord intends for them to be. Advent and Christmas are not a time for us just to forget the troubles of the world and focus on the positive stuff. Rather, taking a journey with Isaiah is a remembering that hope, real hope, is not that we can just tune out from the hard stuff for a month before in January we go back to real life, but that it is a thing that is a declaration that in the midst of difficulty and hardship, in the midst of all that real life has, this candle of hope burns for us today because what Isaiah is saying here is going, I'm giving you a glimpse of how it all ends. I'm giving you a glimpse. I'm, I'm, I'm letting you glimpse for a second in this passage the, the last chapter of the story. And the last chapter of the story doesn't end in despair. It ends with us learning the ways of the Lord. It ends with us, this kind of beautiful poetic image of beating our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks and studying war no more. That this is what the end will look like for all the nations. That this is what the end will look like for this nation. Remember, the prophets come in times of division, of turmoil, of difficulty. This candle burns for those moments. It burns for a nation where we are very divided today, where we are very polarized today. It burns in a world where there are all kinds of difficulties and problems. And it burns in our lives with the struggles and the questions and the fears that we all have the uncertainties that we face. Isaiah is saying, remember how it goes in the end. Remember where this is headed. There's a certain hope that this candle burns for that should inform when we trust where it's going, that we, that we feel ourselves. Because listen to the language Isaiah is using. He's not saying, I hope it will, or maybe it will, or it should, or yeah, the probabilities are good. He's saying it shall become where conflict will end, where divisions will be healed, where reconciliation will happen. He's saying this is an assured future that we have. And knowing that and believing that should cause us to live differently. That knowledge should affect the ways that we live. What does Advent hope look like? What does that mean? Well, some of you have heard me uh, say this before, but the best image I can come up with, to me, comes from growing up as a, a little boy on some Christmas mornings that I had. Uh, some of you may have traditions like this in your home on Christmas Day, when you wake up on Christmas to, to, uh, to see what Santa Claus is, has brought. But for me, that, those were some of the greatest days of my, of my childhood were Christmas mornings. And the way that Christmas mornings and hope worked for us, uh, I describe it as a top of the staircase Christmas morning hope. When I was young, Christmas morning for me kind of worked with, a, it started with a series of negotiations. First thing we had to negotiate in our household, having two younger brothers, was who got what furniture in the living room for Santa to leave gifts on. 
And, and the big debate in our household was who got the sofa. Because we had two armchairs and a sofa. And whoever got the sofa, there was the likelihood that if Santa had an extra gift that had been brought down that he wasn't certain where it should go, the person on the sofa had the most room to get the spillover gift. And so there was a lot of negotiating between me and my two younger brothers, David and Hayes, of who got the armchairs, which no one really wanted, and who got the sofa. And as the oldest brother, and I'm naturally just very intimidating, I normally would find a way to get the sofa for myself because that's the kind of sacrificial leader I am, is wanting to make certain that any extra Christmas gift didn't go to David or Hayes. So that was the first negotiation. The second negotiation, we had to negotiate the time for waking up on Christmas morning. And I'm certain that many of you have done this, where my brothers and I would go with an early morning time we wanted to get up, and my parents would negotiate for a later time in the morning when we could wake up. But we would finally agree, all of us, on a time to wake up. Uh, the third thing is we negotiated where we would sleep, because my brothers and I wanted to make certain that we were all up at the same time. So we slept in the same space, so we would all that night like sleep in David's bedroom, or my bedroom, or, um, or David and Hayes' bedroom, and, and uh, we would kind of have that negotiation. But we'd be ready, we'd go to sleep, we'd have the alarm clock set, all the negotiating would be done, and then we'd wake up on Christmas morning. We'd run to my parents' room, we'd wake them up, uh, and then we'd all walk out to the top of the staircase that went down the steps into our living room. And that was just a magical moment. Because as we were up there, my parents had this like routine where my mom would stay at the top of the steps with the three boys and we were bouncing off the walls in excitement. And my dad would go down the steps. He's like, let me go turn the lights on. And we knew what he was doing, but it drove us crazy anyway. He'd walk really slowly and he'd go down the steps and he'd flip on a light. He's like, I don't know. I don't know if I see anything. Let me turn on the coffee maker for me and your mom. And we were at the top of the steps like, Dad, just let us come down the steps. And you're like, let me turn on the Christmas tree lights. I don't know, guys. It's dark over there. I'm looking at the sofa. Thomas, I don't see a whole lot on there. Uh, it may not be. And we were just like going crazy, ready to, to charge down the steps. And no matter what he said, there was a sense in us that no matter how much he was like, oh, I don't think there's much there. We knew there was stuff there. We were hopeful. It wasn't a passive hope of like, maybe there's something there. It was like, no, we knew no matter how bad we had been the year before, and we could be pretty bad as we go through the year, that there was going to be stuff down there. It was a hope that we didn't know the details. We didn't know, but we knew what lay before us at the bottom of the steps. And those were magical moments of what we at this church call hopeful expectation living with this sense of anticipation of what lay down there. If we take the knowledge of this candle seriously and what Isaiah is saying, you and I should live not just at Christmas, but 365 days a year with a kind of top of the staircase Christmas morning expectation. Not that minimizes pain, not that's Pollyanna-ish about there's nothing hard in life, but says that when you get down the steps, there's something beautiful that awaits us. We should wake up every day with a sense of what's God gonna do now? What's God gonna do in the midst of, how's God gonna heal what's broken, what's hurting, what's divided in our world and divided in our lives? I had somebody tell me recently that things have been so hard in their family, along with the difficulties in their world, they said, I have had so much pain for three years, I don't think I've had a peaceful good night's sleep. This candle burns for him and for each of us of saying know what waits you at the bottom of the steps. You don't know the details of it, but it's good and he'll be healed. 
And so if you're somebody today that just needs to sit like my friend and hoping for a peaceful night's sleep, take that knowledge of hope. Take what Isaiah is saying in his word of prophecy in and sit with it and rejoice in it today. But as we close, there's one other thing I want you to consider. That maybe, just maybe, this candle and hope burn not in a way where we just passively wait, knowing that the ending is good. And that might be enough. But I want you to consider that Isaiah's words also invite us in to help building the world to look this way. To be what one theologian calls co-laborers with God. That we can be so filled with hope that we don't give in to despair, that we don't give in to cynicism, that we actually work in this world for the ways that God is going to make things in the end, that the kingdom becomes our sense of how we want to live in the here and now, to heal divisions in our society. That invitation comes in one verse that we just read, and we're going to bring it back up here as we close. It says, Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. There are people who, in the words of Isaiah, look at their lives and say, let's not wait for God to make it right. Let's go to the mountain of the Lord. Let's go learn the Lord's paths. Let's go learn the Lord's ways. Let's go to the mountain of the Lord. I'll give you an example of what I think that looks like. Because for people of faith, God's ways are often very clear for us. We just don't follow. We don't walk in his paths. Not because we don't know. We just, we just don't pay attention. We choose to live differently. Whenever I have a couple that comes and meets with me about premarital counseling, or whenever I have a couple that comes and meets with me who's bringing their child uh, for baptism, one of the things that I will often say to them is use this moment, whether it's, it's your wedding or your anniversary, or use this moment of a baptism to go and to ask yourselves, how are we doing in our marriage? And you can do this in all areas of life. This, marriage is just one example, okay? You can do this in any area of your life. And by that, don't just say, well, how are the kids doing? How are we doing? But it's like, what would it mean, in the words of Isaiah, to go to the mountain of the Lord together? What's God's path for marriage? What's that supposed to look like? And the text that I always give them to look at comes from Ephesians chapter 5, which I think is the greatest definition of marriage that exists in the world. It's the greatest description of marriage that exists. And to boil it down, what marriage is, is two equal partners seeking to outserve each other. Two equal individuals seeking to outserve each other. And if you want to debate that, I'm happy to do that at a different time, but I'm telling you that's what it says. <laughs> that loving each other is saying, Am I outserving you? And so rather than going and just going, Well, how are the kids and how's the job and how are we feeling and everything else is going, how are we doing at walking in the paths of the Lord? Come on, let's go on a date and, and call it our let's go to the mountain of the Lord day. We gotta come up with a better name. That's not very romantic. But Go and have that conversation and ask yourself the question. It's like, how do I feel like I'm doing it that? As a spouse, how do I feel like I am out serving my life? Where do I feel like I'm doing that well? Where do I not? Where does my wife sense that she's doing that? Where does she not? And then if you want to get really daring, ask the question, how does Beth feel like I'm doing it that? Where does she feel served? What does that look like? Where does she not? Where do I feel that Beth is serving? Where is that working? Where is it not? That's a conversation. 
And I have seen over and over and over again how God can take people who are in moments of difficulty, of struggle, of conflict, of disagreement, and that that can be a paradigm by which swords can be beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord. That's what we do with uh, finances, for example. We used to have stewardship campaigns. We don't do that anymore. We should just call Stewardship Sunday, let's go to the mountain of the Lord. What does God want us to do? It's very clear biblically. He wants us to live with extravagant financial generosity. Again, you want to come debate that? I'm happy to. That's how God calls us to live with our finances, to be unbelievably generous people with our time and with our talent and with our treasure. And so let's just live the way we're supposed to. Let's align with what God's paths are. What is God's path for community? What is God's path for friendship? What's God's path for parenting? What's God's path for leadership? Look at your life today, if you can, and say, where are things not exactly the way they should be? And say, what does it mean to go to the mountain of the Lord? And if you're sitting there going, well, in this area of my life, I don't know what it means. We have a whole church staff you can come talk to. There's no more important conversation that we could have to say, this, this might be some things to think about, of what God's paths are for these things. To do so in a spirit of hope that we don't have to wait for just a day for God to set things right. But God can do it today. We can co-labor with God in hope to heal divisions, to reconcile hurts, to forgive each other, to live in grace. This candle burns for something powerful. For friends, there is a day coming in your life, in my life, in this nation in this world where our swords will be beaten into plowshares, where our spears into pruning hooks, and we will study war no more. It shall happen. Be hopeful today. Christmas morning, top of the staircase, hopeful of what God We'll do next. Hallelujah and amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray as your people to be people of hope this day that you will heal and maybe even invite us if we can come to your mountain to do the work of healing and the journey of healing ourselves. May your words speak to us all and guide our steps this Advent, this day, this week in the days to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.